All right, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Colossians, chapter 3. We'll start with just the first three verses. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Title is simply, Risen with Christ. Some time ago, I'm not precisely sure how long ago it was, it wasn't too long ago, I brought to you the story of a man by the name of Fred DeMara, Ferdinand Waldo DeMara. And I mentioned to you when I did bring this story up of his life that there was a movie based on it back in the early 60s with Tony Curtis called The Great Imposter. I remember as a young person watching the movie and being a bit fascinated with the movie. Years later, I decided to read the biography. And to this day, I'm just fascinated by this man and what he was able to do as a con artist. He apparently had an extraordinarily high IQ. Now, why he spent his life pretending to be all these people that I'm going to give you this short list... I can't say. But he impersonated a civil engineer where they were doing work on an actual bridge. But he was one of the engineers on that. He wasn't an engineer. A sheriff's deputy, which he had no background in law enforcement. His impersonation of an assistant prison warden is very, very fascinating. Because as the assistant warden in the prison, they sent him into a unit where there was basically, we could say, the criminally insane. Very difficult cell block. And in one instance, he was able to talk an inmate out of using a knife he had to obviously do damage to people. And he did such a good job in the prison as an assistant warden. He's an imposter. That once he was found out for all these things, and a couple more I'll mention to you, the warden of the prison said, I don't even care. If he's an he did such a great job. I would hire him back in a minute. That's quite an accomplishment for an imposter. He impersonated a doctor of applied psychology... I was in a college, a hospital orderly. Well, I think anybody could probably do that. A lawyer. In fact, when he was in the um, service and he was brought up on charges, he defended himself, which lawyers never do that. Remember, he's not a lawyer. And he won his case. A child care expert, a Benedictine monk, a Trappist monk. As a naval surgeon, I shared with you this story in one of the messages. He successfully operated on several wounded soldiers in a battle in Korea. And saved the life of a couple of them. And what did he do? He had no knowledge of surgery at all. He assumed that he'd be on the ship. Not much is going to happen. He just pretend to be the surgeon of ship's company. But then all of a sudden something happened he didn't expect. Go into another room and just quickly read through a book. Come out and successfully perform surgery. A cancer researcher. A teacher. And he went through all of these things. His story to me is just fascinating. That someone so smart could impersonate successfully until he was found out in all of these areas of life. The other part of it is why not use that great intellect that he had and the apparent photographic memory as well to be the real thing. That part eludes me. I I don't know. But he was smart enough to know two things, that when people were getting suspicious of him in all of these areas, he was eventually caught in every single one of these things as a liar. He knew two things. Number one, the burden of proof is on the person making the charges. In our courts of law, the burden of proof is not on the accused. It's on the prosecution. And that's the theory of our law. 
But he also knew that when you're in danger to attack. And so this is what he did and got away with it for so long until finally his whole life was found out, spent a little time in prison. And what's really, again, as a side note, interesting about this man, when Steve McQueen was dying, he was the one that gave him last rites. At that time, he had uh, apparently had some actual minister's credentials. And so it's just fascinating to me how you could pretend to be somebody and rise into all these different ranks and for a season enjoy some success in a field that you really don't know much about except just reading and fooling people. By the way you carry yourself, by the way you talk. For instance, if someone said they got a little suspicious about was he really a surgeon or other things, he would attack him. Meaning, how can you dare question? And look at the results and see he would get them on the defense. Yeah, well, like some politicians. I heard President Reagan tell a story about politicians. A politician and a preacher went to heaven. And they both met St. Peter at the gate, according to President Reagan. When they went in, St. Peter was showing the preacher, a very godly, godly preacher, godly man, where his new home was going to be. And it was a very, very small room with you know, just a bed and a few little things. And he took the politician and he showed him his dwelling. It was this massive mansion with, you know, manicured lawns and all of this stuff. People uh, working on his mansion, actually, you know, going to work. And the politician was really a bit humbled by that. And he said, I, I don't get it. He says, this godly man, he gets a, just a little room to live in. And he says, you know, uh, I get this great big mansion with all these amenities. And St. Peter apparently told him, he says, well, you have to understand how things work around here. You're the first politician to ever make it. <laughs> well, I guess there's some wisdom in that. But to go back to Damara for a moment, and make application for our lives. Why would you want to go around pretending to be something that you're not when you have the full potential to be what you could be? This says that we are risen with Christ. And we're going to read a few more verses along these lines. For me, I don't want to pretend to be anybody except myself and to identify with Christ, Christ Jesus. I just recently told somebody that when they were registering some complaint about Christianity, and I agreed with them. I just said, just remember, it's always Jesus. Anything confuses you, just go back to Jesus. You see things in the church that ought not to be, go back to Jesus. Go back to the book. That's what we follow. The instructions of Christ, the apostles, and of course the prophets. So in Colossians chapter 3, where we just read, verse 1, it says, If ye then be risen with Christ. What that means is that you are now, those of you, we talk about water baptism. You've been water baptized. When you come up out of the tank, the river, the lake, whatever, it symbolizes that you are now walking in the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But it's more than just symbolic, as you know from the book here, the Bible, that we are given the spirit of Christ. Read the 8th chapter of Romans. We are given the spirit of Christ, and we are to now walk in his resurrection. Perfectly, well, no, sin still dwells in us, and we battle it, but we're to walk in a new life. This is not the same as a resolution to change. The Bible says repent, and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, salvation that comes from God, Whatever we accomplish, we accomplish by the grace of God. And again, I talked about his mercy. And we give the glory to God. And that's the way it's written. That's the way it actually works. But throughout Christianity, there have always been pretenders. For whatever their reason. Just like I can't figure out Fred Damaris' mindset as to why he did what he did. I don't know. But he could have been probably somebody very notable in the world other than being a con artist. But I want you to listen to something. I just read this just early this morning, just today. This is... Something very fresh. 
Listen to these words. The power of holiness has deteriorated among us compared to what it was a generation ago. And there's an exclamation point after that. Christianity runs unclean and full of dregs, murky and unholy among professing believers in Christ. And we know God will not put up with it much longer. If Egypt knows a drought is coming by the low ebbing of the Nile, surely we can see judgment hovering by the fall of the power of godliness. We hear many people mourning for what they have lost. Some for the lives of friends in war, others for their wealth and possessions. But the group who must claim first place among mourners are churchgoers who have lost their first love. Though decay has set in because they have forfeited their compassion for Christ, his truth, worship, fellow servants, and their holy walk before God and man. We know that's true today. But that statement was written in the early or mid-1600s by William Gurnall. You can read, if you read theology, and most of you probably don't, you'll read of writers five, six hundred years ago saying, surely the coming of the Lord must be very close. And these statements, too, where Gurnall is saying, God's not going to put up with this much longer. And if you read history, he didn't. Luther once stated that he would continue to fight what was wrong inside Germany, as long as he was alive. And then after that, somebody else had to take over. But what happened in Germany during the first part of the 20th century, we already know. So there is truth in this, obviously. But what I wanted to point out to you is that from the beginning, there is nothing new under the sun. In our country here, just to remind you, in our country here, church attendance was so low, right prior to the American Revolution, that God raised up George Whitfield, John Wesley's brother Charles, Jonathan Edwards, and a great revival took place right prior to our revolution. But by the early 1800s, it was already going right back to where it was again. Churches were not filled, and people were violating the Lord's Day and so on. So we have Charles Finney and a few others, uh, Asbury, Robert Asbury, and a few others who came and was part of what a second great awakening. 20th century, we saw the uh, advent of men like Billy Graham, and others. So I just point this out to you to say that certainly we are in a position where we can say this is true. And if I didn't tell you this was written over 500 years ago, you would think somebody just wrote it recently. Nothing has changed. However, the principles of scripture likewise have not changed. And certainly God has not changed. So you need to make a decision for yourself. If what we sang earlier, teach me your ways, and I'll walk in your truth. You teach me your ways, and I'll walk in them. That's what you sang. Now, decisions have to be made to determine if you really mean that. Just recently, within the last month or so, the Lord reminded me of something that I prayed over 40 years ago. Something I asked God to do in me and to make me. Now, during this season of meditation, which was only a few weeks ago, I hear in my spirit, not a voice, but just an impression, don't you remember what you prayed? And then basically it was, do you still want that? Well, my answer was yes, but it's easy to be a philosophical Christian or a theoretical Christian. Or one, now we got this new term that we use, we hear a lot rather, I identify as. A lot of people want to identify as a Christian, but the question is, have you been truly born again? You don't want to be in the Christian realm of Fred DeMar, pretending to be something that you know you're not. And again, I'm not talking about sinless perfectionism. That is not accomplished by anybody. However, David, who's a good example of what I'm saying, had a perfect heart. He intended to do things perfectly and didn't always. 
especially on a few specific occasions. But we have to have a perfect heart. So while we may fail in the attempt, we are making the attempt to be what this book says we should be and we possess that we actually are these things. I thought this was a bit um, entertaining and I'd like to give it to you. For some of you who were raised in the old school, I think you can identify what this man, Joel Vincenti, stated about things my mother taught me or what my mother taught me. He wrote that my mother taught me religion. When I spilled grape juice on the carpet, she instructed, you better pray the stain will come out of the carpet. He goes on to say, my mother taught me logic from her decisive words because I said so. That's why. You ever hear that? I have a little granddaughter. Whatever you do, she'll always say, why? Hi, Poppy. Hi. I'm having coffee. Why? I'm going to have breakfast. Why? It's always why. And for those of us who ever asked that question, the answer in the old school was because I said so. And I'm just going to tell you the truth, whether you agree or disagree, it doesn't matter. I like the old school better. He said, my mother taught me foresight. Make sure you wear clean underwear in case you're in an accident. Now, how many of you ever heard that one? Yeah, it's like, that had to be like phenomenal. You know, like, to this day, I got to make sure that my underwear is clean. I don't know if I'm going to get hit by a tractor trailer. (laughs) Old school wisdom, but it worked. My mother taught me irony. Keep laughing and I'll give you something to cry about. My mother taught me stamina. You'll sit there to all that spinach. Your vegetables are finished. My mother taught me about weather. It looks as if a tornado swept through your room. My mother taught me about the circle of life. I brought you into this world, and I can take you out. (laughs) My mom is here today, and she knows this story is true. One of her friends she grew up with was having a problem with one of the kids. What parent doesn't have a problem with a kid? So the young man at the time said to his mother, I'm leaving, I'm running away. And uh, his mother said, all right, fine, you want to run away? And she stripped him naked, took every stitch of clothes off of him. He says, that's how you come into the world, and that's how you leave him. He never ran away. I think he joined the Marine Corps, but he never ran away. It's old school wisdom. It's a parenthetical little story there. It's kind of neat, and some of us can identify with some of these things. But we must make sure that at all costs we identify with Christ in reality, not in pretense, not as an imposter, not as someone who says things but doesn't know them or doesn't really mean them. So we look at verse 2, which we read. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. There's a man that I was reading just the other day, reading about. He's a multi-billionaire, lots from real estate and other things. Still professes to be a devout Catholic, Roman Catholic. Yet every bit of credit he gives for his wisdom and business and his achievements goes to Scientology. So I was thinking to myself, why not give credit to one or to the other? Well, it doesn't make sense to me. It may make sense to him. It doesn't make sense to me. We are taught to set our affection on things above. And as we get older, for those of us, well, everybody here is getting older. doesn't matter what your age is, you're getting older. You see, as you get older, how fast life is going, how fast it's gone. I just told you I was at an event. That's been going on for, I don't know, 65, 70 years, every year. All these people come together. And then I saw people who I grew up with, and of course, some of them are older than me. And I'm noticing who's not there, who's not there. And I spoke to one of the men, good guy, 
And I said, you know, it's just we're all getting older. And he added, and dying. And you have to be able to perceive that, that no matter what you have down here, it doesn't go with you. It's just so simple, and we hear it all the time. But listen, you can't take it with you. Simple statement, easy to understand. Everybody agrees. They have to. Just go past any cemetery. But we never, or many people I should say, never behave as though that is the case. You're not taking whatever you have with you. It does not mean to go to another extreme, to always do without, because Solomon wrote, well, at least it's in the book of Proverbs, don't make me rich and don't make me poor. They're both extremes. If I'm rich, I may forget you. If I'm poor, I may steal. So watch for the extremism. But here it says we are to set our affection on things above. And common sense would say that this makes sense. And I told you last week, so I won't repeat myself on that. This has been my view from my late teens. There's the grave. I'm going to be there. And so I will look at life backwards. It's just a matter of time. Now, there's a legend about King Arthur and his knights that before he sent them out on these errands, errantry, to right wrongs and fix things and so on, that he would gather them around his table so his knights could see his face and the face of his fellow knights. And the point there is if they would go out and do gallant things for their king, a man, how much more should we do to come face to face with Christ as we do in the book and do our utmost, as Oswald Chambers wrote a book about this, devotional book, my utmost for his highest. Try this out sometime. Try doing something or thinking about things that you do that you know are wrong. Could be anything from your language to anything. And stand before the cross. But not an empty cross like we have here. Stand before that suffering Jesus. And see if you can perform the same deed at the foot of the cross. Where Christ is dying for the very sin you're about to commit. Entertaining to commit. I won't say it's impossible to do. But it gets very difficult to look at. You've said this. Well maybe you haven't but I have. Look at me. Look me in the eye and say that. One of the tells of people who are not honest is they have a way of glancing away from your eyes. Look in Jesus' face, and then ask yourself, where is my affection really at? This world or the next? Which, by the way, is a problem that we have in preaching today, as I've mentioned many times, so I'll just briefly mention this. Every speech from a pulpit, even with a Bible open, seems to be a motivational speech on how you could be a success in this life. Yet the book talks about set your affection on the next world. That, my friends, is not only good advice, because it's not advice. That is the truth. Set your affection on things above. Make Christ your king. Your life, let it line up with gifts and talents devoted to Christ's kingdom. Whatever your gifts and talents may be, use them for the glory of God. That's setting your affection on things above. Look at verse 3. For ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. We can look at this and say, if I'm hid, I cannot be seen. And that means Satan can't, in one sense, find me. But he certainly can't touch me. Unless we go back to the book of Job and see that God must give permission to Satan to come into your lives. Let me add something else as well. Satan does not bother with professors and con artists. He already has them. He looks for people who are advancing on his kingdom, which is going to come to an end. He looks for those of you who are truly have your affections set on 
things above, and he'll just bring all types of temptations your way, and stresses and all of that. We must really understand that our life is hid with Christ. What assurance do you have? For some of us raised in Christian denominations where the emphasis was on our works, though not directly stated that our works brings to heaven, in some cases it was combined with grace. Grace plus nothing gives you salvation. Nothing. However, some of us were under the impression that I must be good. It's the same relationship we have with Santa Claus. He knows who's sleeping. He knows who's good. He knows who's bad. And so we want to live to be good so that we get gifts at Christmas time. The beauty of Christ and his gospel is that he gives us these things freely based on his merit and what he has done. And he gives them to you though you don't deserve them. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And that's the beauty. Well, part of the beauty. It should, if you have the understanding correctly, you know you're a sinner and you know you have been forgiven of every sin freely, it should make you humble. You see, it was the Pharisees that went out, on one in particular in Jesus' story, saying, I'm glad I'm not like him. Now, don't answer, don't shake your head, don't say anything. But have you ever done that? Where do we drop down a few verses? I want to share something with you that I think is one of the things that impressed me when I was reading it. Have you ever done that? Someone in a local fellowship has been born again. I'm not talking about con artists and professors that are, you know, willfully violating God. And you, for whatever your reason is, and maybe you have a good reason, you just don't care for them. And so you come to a conclusion. I'm glad I'm not like him. Well, I got to say that that thought has passed through my mind a few times as well. However, we, again, if we properly understand what it means to be hidden Christ, truly forgiven of every sin, not just some, every sin is forgiven, and the people around you have the same mercy. That's what you need to see. It's not just you to whom God has been merciful. He's been merciful to everyone here in the church, around the world, wherever it may be found. And so we ought to treat people with a lot of humility on our part. Concerning being the real thing, John MacArthur, the preacher, I'm sure you've heard him, he tells a story of his upbringing in Downey, California, which is right outside L.A., and that in the days when he was brought up, the town was not very well built as it is today and built up. And there was one man there that pretty much owned the whole city. But then at some point he just started to sell off and subdivide, but he kept the golf course as one of his parcels of land. For whatever his reason was, the owner, very wealthy man, went down to his golf club, but he wasn't dressed properly. MacArthur says he was dressed in shabby clothes and unkempt, who knows why. Well, the guard at the country club saw him, had a patrol car pick him up, had him arrested as a vagrant. Well, in the process of time, which probably didn't take too long, that guard certainly lost his job and found himself in another city somewhere because man in shabby clothes was actually the owner. How does this apply to you and to me? We're told to put on the whole armor of God, not just me, everybody. And we're given a new suit of clothes, so to speak, when we come to Christ. So we are properly dressed. This is a metaphor. We are properly dressed 24 hours a day, seven days a week, because we actually truly belong to Christ. We are risen with him. So we're not part-time Christians. Put on your Sunday best, come to a service, identify not only with Christ, but maybe with the preacher and the local congregation that suits your fancy. But you have to be the real thing. 
I remember seeing on a billboard near a church many years ago something that struck me. And it was this statement. If there was a, well, a judge in a jury that was to convict you today of being a Christian, comparing yourself to the book, would they have enough evidence to find you guilty? Evidence. You say, well, what does the Bible say about evidence? Well, the fruit of the Spirit is, and we go there, and Romans 8, and Romans 6, and on and on. It says that there is, Jesus talked about it, there is real evidence for someone who truly belongs to Christ, and vice versa. Well, that's where you want to be. And so uh, let me just pick out one of the fruit of the Spirit we read in our King James Bible, number 9, temperance, which means self-control. Here's a, a secular writer, Daniel Asks, who wrote an article titled, Who's in Charge Here? This is not Christian, this is secular. And he wrote these words. He said, life in modern Western cultures is like living at a giant all-you-can-eat buffet, offering more calories, credit, intoxicants, sex, and just about anything else one could take to excess that our forebears, those that went before us, might ever have imagined, with more possibilities for pleasure and fewer rules and constraints than ever before. Then he wrote these words, and they're rather engaging. The happy few will be those able to exercise self-control. That's a secular writer. We find in the book, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And I always like stopping at those three. Love, joy. A friend of mine was preaching at a church not so far from here. Back in the days when they had week-long meetings, we had them too. And uh, he always had a very dry sense of humor. So I asked him, how did the meeting go? at such and such a church. He said, brother, that is about the most joyless bunch of people I've ever met. And I believe that a better advertisement for Christ is to actually have the fruit of the Spirit. Gospel tracts, that's how I got saved with gospel tracts. And we have the book and we have God has many ways of bringing people to himself. But for you, the best advertisement is that you're bearing the fruit of God's Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, increasing in faith, meekness, and self-control. If a secular writer, many of them are finding the things that we should be finding, Christians, I mean, and they're coming up with statements like this, people who have self-control are going to be happier. Well, 2,000 years before he wrote what he wrote, God already put these things down. Look at verse number four. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye also appear with him in glory. Even though I just told you you can go through theological writings 2,000 years and find writers always talking about how imminent the coming of Christ is. And that's the way we're supposed to look at it. But our generation has much more evidence. World population, technology, and we go down these lines that no other generation had. But still we don't name dates, but it has to be getting pretty close, very close. Well, when we look at this verse, when Christ, who is our life... Now, have you ever read, mostly read... Either a woman or a man, talk about husband and wife, and say, they're my life. And I'm not putting that down. I mean, some people really do feel that way. But if you think of a husband-wife relationship where the relationship is optimal, where somebody actually feels that way, they're afraid to lose their cherished loved one, husband, wife, could be somebody else, grand- grandparents, parents, children. And read what this says here, make the application. Christ is our life. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. You'll find that this will buffer you against most of the things 
and even some of the things that you brought into this sanctuary with you today that trouble you, and this will buffer it. The Christ is our life. And I want to point out, this is just for me to say, it's not Christianity because that's like the ice cream place there that offers 29 flavors, 39 flavors. You can have whatever you want. You can pick a version of Christianity that suits you. But for me, it's Jesus. And Jesus, the way we find him in this book, apostles and prophets also obviously included. You need to be able to leave here today or finish this day out, wherever you're going to finish it out, and say, Christ is my life. I met a young man once. I just making a remark. I talked to a lot of people, just talked to people. Bodybuilder injected with gallons of steroids. And I just tried to make a light conversation with him about bodybuilding. And some, if you know anything about anabolic steroids, some people can't handle them psychologically. They're kind of rage all the time and nervous. And that was this kid. And I just made some mention about bodybuilding. And his head spun around. He says, bodybuilding is my life. I said, okay. All right. Here we go. Then I said to myself, bodybuilding was my life. I'd be one depressed individual. If all I had was working out in the gym, and that was it. Working out is my life. I wouldn't be satisfied. I wouldn't be happy. But Christ is our life. Then we enjoy the other things that we do, legitimate things, because Christ is our life. He's the foundation. And when he shall appear, it says, we will also appear with him. Think about that. So verse 5 tells us to mortify, put to death, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, Inordinate affection simply means going after things that are beyond the pale, beyond the norm. Evil concupiscence, this is where the King James doesn't help us out too much. Evil desires. Covetousness. Someone pointed out to me, I don't know what he was talking about, pharmaceutical companies or something. He said, see, that's the problem with capitalism. I said, no, that's not the problem with capitalism. That's the problem with covetousness. I believe in the free market. I believe you should be able to make as much money as you want, relative as you're a Christian to this book. But it's not capitalism. It's covetousness. And covetousness, a peculiar temptation for us in Western culture, is called idolatry. Interesting that so many preachers make an emphasis of it in almost every sermon, and yet the book says it's idolatry. Might as well just set up an iron furnace of Baal, but that's more extreme then that is there. Put up statues and bow down to them. Statues of wood that can't hear, see, smell, touch. And we read in the prophets that the people who do, they're just like them. They're as dead as the idol is. And let me just say very quickly, I've known some people personally who have become millionaires. It didn't start out that way. I still know them. One I'm thinking of in particular is an extraordinarily nice person. I've known him since I was a little kid. A few others as well. But for me, I'm happy when somebody says, look at my brand new kitchen. And I said, well, that's really nice, you know, but it's not me. It never has been. I signed on to Christ for peace. And then we read Proverbs that it's better to live in the corner of a roof than in a big, big house with a contentious woman. All right, or man. It's better to be alone than in bad company. Put to death these things because we are not the old person that we used to be. We are now the new man, or if you prefer, the new woman. And that is not a resolution once again. That is a gift from God. That in time, you are a fruit tree. And you will bear fruit if you belong to Christ. But you can meet people in church fellowships. Been there 30, 40, 50 years. Bear any fruit. That's concerning. Verse 6. He says these things. is a short list. For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. 
Some time ago, some scientists were studying why a certain tribe in South America was dying off well before their time. And they finally found that the cause was coming from an insect that was infecting the people and so on and so forth. The tragic truth of that story is that it was easy to fix. It was an easy thing to take care of. But they did not want to make the simple changes to affect the change, so they kept dying prematurely. We can possess more of Christ, or if you prefer, Christ can possess more of you, but it all depends on you and how serious you are about the song that you sang. Teach me your ways, O Lord, my God, and I will walk in your truth. Listen, I'm just telling you on a personal level, I don't have any desire to teach anyone who has no intention of going home and practicing. I don't have any interest in somebody wasting my time just because they have a kind of a loose relationship with this thing that they have, emotional. You have to ask yourself, is Christ my life? Or is it identifying with the church and the part that you play in it? You need to identify with Christ himself. He will never let you down. He cannot lie. And you're going to find that anything else you do after that, especially service to Christ, is much, much better. If you suffer from the fear of man, you're going to suffer for the rest of your life. You could downsize all your fears to one, the fear of the Lord, the beginning of wisdom, the knowledge of the holy. After that, you don't have to fear too, too much. You'll be tempted to fear, but you don't have to fear. So these people in South America never made the change. They kept on dying prematurely. And why is it, and I've mentioned this before, why is it we sang songs, especially back in the 90s, of all that we were going to do as the church, we're going to take over this and take over that, But I sit back and I look for the evidence. And to my knowledge, there hasn't been one city in the whole world that's been taken for Christ. But there may be one here or there, but I haven't read about it. I haven't come, you know, to that place where I said, well, there's a city that's been taken for Christ. But even so, if it was only one or two, if it exists, certainly not the way the songs were written. If we're going to march, let's march straight to Jesus. When Jesus returns, he will restore all things. He will make all things new. You have got to ask yourself today, is Christ truly my life? To which everybody else comes in second, or third, or fourth. Everything else comes after that. Christ is my life, and I must mortify my members which are upon the earth so that I don't forfeit the cure that can be mine simply because I did not want to change. Some people, as you know, get stuck in a rut. I live a life that's very disciplined. So much so that it could appear to be a rut, but it's not. It's by design. I do certain things at the same time every day because it brings order to my life. It helps me to have an economy on time. But others are stuck in a rut. And you know, I've mentioned this before. Watch out for those little foxes. Now, if you commit adultery, everybody's going to know it. Everybody. You get caught in a theft, everyone's going to know it. But what people don't see is those subtle things in your life, these small things that have never changed. You know, when I teach on anxiety and depression, especially the the Oasis, the show, which will be back up soon, I approach it different than than when I'm preaching, but I don't know that I've ever met somebody, in fact, I do know, I have never met somebody who says, you know what's really special about me? I have panic attacks. You ever have one? And I would say, sure. Ain't it great? (laughs) Me, I'm Mr. Panic. Want to see my tattoo? I saw a man who put a tattoo on his arm or chest or someplace of electric shock treatments, which he had quite a few. So he made it some kind of badge of honor. 
I've never met a person with nervous symptoms or a mental condition, they're not the same, not necessarily the same, that were proud of it. Hey, I'm a goof-off. How about you? You lazy? Some of you are simply stuck. And the problem is you haven't done anything to get unstuck. And I'm simply saying, if you can't do it for yourself, and do it for Christ. Get unstuck. There's a responsibility that we all have to properly represent Christ in this world. You can go down many roads of how to do that. I'm just simply giving you a general exhortation. Get unstuck. Stop blaming everybody. You say, but pastor, you know my story. Bad things happen to me. Yeah, I know. And they happen to me too. But I'm not going to have life dictate to me how I'm going, or people either, how I'm going to live because that's what they want. I look at the book and see what does he want. I don't want to get stuck. And if you're stuck, and some of you are, get unstuck. Go home today and decide how you're going to get unstuck. And here's the book. There's plenty of instructions. Get unstuck. Get out of that rut. Don't make an excuse for the things that God says there is no excuse. We fail, but he never says that there's an excuse for that. We turn from it. Verse 7. In the which ye also walked some time when you lived in them, back before we met Christ. We lived in these things. That's just a very short list. But now put off all these anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communication out of your mouth. Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds, and then we have put on the new man with his deeds. Don't usually like to quote from movies too, too much. But many of us have seen the short ending to A Few Good Men with Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise. And it's all about Tom Cruise pushing a Marine Corps major into telling the truth of what actually happened to a private who died. And so as the moment gets heated there in the courtroom, Cruise simply states, as the major asks him a question, he says, I want to know the truth. And Nicholson's character says, you can't handle the truth. One thing you're guaranteed as you read this Bible, it will not lie to you. Preachers may, and Christians may, but God will not. Can you handle the truth about yourself? Not just a kind of a loose identity with God and that. That's all good. Can you handle the truth about yourself? That you're stuck and it's time to get unstuck. And Christians don't get stuck halfway to heaven. Three quarters, seven eighths. We keep on going forward. We keep pushing forward until we make it there. Get unstuck. This was the one I wanted to leave you with, though. Put on the new man. Look at verse 10, which is renewed in knowledge. So now you know. Renewed in the knowledge after the image of him, the image of Christ that created him. Now here's the thing. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew. So anybody who is not a Jew in this context would be considered Gentile or Greek. Not necessarily from Greece. Gentile. Let me read it again. Verse 11. There is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, as some pronounce it Scythian, slave or free, bond or free, but Christ is all and in all. Now the reason I found that verse so engaging, it's actually the one that really jumped out at me, was the Scythians or Scythians. They were highly barbaric people. One of the things among any, fierce warriors, much like you would say the Spartans. In battle, the first enemy soldier that was killed, they drink his blood. That sends a message. It says, we're serious about this. Have any of you ever read the book? I know some of you have seen the movies. But have any of you ever read the book, Dracula? It's a classic. By the way, Frankenstein, too. If you haven't never read the book, Frankenstein, and you've seen the movies, there's no comparison between the movie and the book. The book has a completely different point. 
Well, Bram Stoker, who wrote Dracula, apparently based it on some of the life of Vlad the Impaler. Lived in Transylvania. Every fact of his life cannot be clearly corroborated. But one thing that stands out when I was reading the book Dracula, and now if you're saying, why were you reading Dracula? Some of you are saying that. Why were you reading Dracula? Because I wanted to read classics. Satisfied? Vlad the Impaler, in order to show, and I think in this case it was the Turks, he impaled all the people they had conquered on sticks. So when they came to attack, that sent a message. You can read a lot about Vlad the Impaler. But what I want to say to you is this, and it's something to take seriously. If a Scythian came into our, well, they don't exist anymore, but they come into our fellowship and want to be part of the fellowship, my almost getting closer to 50 years of in the church is to say they're going to have a rough time. Good old boys sit in this corner, not necessarily you guys. And the money people sit over in this corner, not necessarily you people, you guys. And then the general population says, we don't like him. See his tattoos? He's got one on his neck. And it goes on and on. When in the 60s, some of us came to the Lord, we had longer hair. I had friends that had hair down here. Mine only touched my collarbone. I came to church with a t-shirt, farmer jeans, and sneakers. Why? Well, A, I didn't own a suit. And if you ever want to see a picture of the first one I owned, it's on Facebook. It is identical to a chessboard. It's true, it was my first suit. It served as both suit and checkerboard. But that was only after my pastor came to me and said, well, now you're going to be playing in the worship team. I play guitar. And working with the youth. And he asked me to wear a shirt and tie. I get one. Didn't have it at the time. So I walked into the church. Of course, I wasn't the worst person ever walking to church. But this is what I said to you earlier. Something that impressed me when I was reading the text. So I'm under the impression this is something the Holy Spirit wants you to hear. If God forgave me, well, I'm all cleaned up now, basically. And you're to some degree cleaned up. Some of you are alcoholics. Some of you are on drugs, adulterers, all these things. And God forgave you of everything. And we get a Scythian walk in. Scythian. Well, look at him. Glad I'm not like him. It's the obligation for us, well, yes, to love them. Don't have to accept their behavior. And as I like to say, God loves you enough to accept you the way you are. But he loves you enough as well not keep you that way. But I'm just talking about generally speaking. So look around this fellowship. And again, don't raise your hand and tell me. Don't shout out when I say, who do you not like? (laughs) Don't shout it out because we'll have a real problem. I'll have a real problem trying to straighten that mess out. Who is it you don't like? Well, I must say it excludes me because you're here every week, so you must like me. But that will fool you too. Some people hang around for the wrong reasons. Who is it in this fellowship here you don't like? Yeah, something about that guy. Did you forget that you were forgiven? And if in sincerity, as we have people all over the world, what's really encouraging to me is a lot of young people coming to Christ. They're blowing past the older people who are, well, I don't know what they're doing. And they're actually saying that we, we don't want all that fluff and trendy stuff. We want the Bible. Give us the Bible. That's encouraging to me. It really is. And I'm seeing more and more of it. Talking to a friend of mine on Friday night. So my nephew's now, he's a born-again Christian. I'm saying to myself, there is no other kind. But I didn't mention it. It's very encouraging. Let me say this again. Please don't get offended. I'm trying to exhort you. Some of them won't come because you are stuck. Not because they are stuck. You're stuck. And they see it. And they perceive it. And they're looking for the real deal. They're looking for someone who doesn't talk about victory and overcoming. They're looking for someone who actually overcame. I usually close the service every week with this. The two great commandments. Love God with all of your heart. 
All of your soul, all of your mind, a lot of you here have good brains, was designed to be used for God. I just told you I've read Dracula, I've read Frankenstein, I've read Moby Dick. Don't ask me why did I read them, because they're classics. That's why I read them. And I don't read much fiction, rarely. But I try to use my brain for the glory of God. So I read uh, the Bible, of course, and theology, and other things as well. All of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, all of the strength. Even if you fail, you are at 100% when you did. And God knows your sincerity. And that counts with God. Love God, now love one another. I'll ask you one more time. Who is it in this fellowship? Because we're not going to be traveling around the world to all these other fellowships. Who is it in this fellowship you don't care for? And correct yourself. You don't have to like people. You have to love them. That's harder. There's a lot of Christians I just don't care for them. But I'm commanded to love them. And we must follow our orders. Are you ready for this? That was a yes or no answer. (laughs) You are risen with Christ. It's not saying one day you're going to be risen with Christ. You are risen with Christ. And you have to put on the new man. Let's go before the Lord. And I, I just, as we're praying, I just want to go over this again. This idea of being stuck. Now, I've been pastor in this city for 36 years. And I'm not stuck here. I'm sent here. I'm not just going through the motions. I study for every single sermon. By now, I could speak off the top of my head, off the cuff. I wouldn't even have to prepare. And you would think, whoa, that was a good message. But I would know. I never prepared for it. I didn't even pray about it. I never do that. Never. So what I'm saying is that I'm not stuck, at least not in this respect. And you need to get unstuck so that we keep marching forward to the great reward that we're going to have. And we must do it by the book. You are risen with Christ. And Christ must be your life. Not Christianity. Christ must be your life. Now, love God. Okay, I love God. You love God. But do we love each other? Are we really concerned about other people's needs? Especially the ones that are little. Those little foxes I mentioned before. So let's pray about this. And I know that many of you are the real deal. I know that. But we must be reminded again and again and again of what this is really all about. Father, we come to you this morning not really moved by our feelings, our emotions. Um, This isn't a temporary thing for us. Christ is our life. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Pour out your spirit on Time for Truth and every branch of your church around the world. That we would all love you with all of the heart, all of the soul, all of the mind, and all of the strength. But never to neglect that we are to love one another. Both belong to the two greatest commandments, or great commandments. Pour out your spirit upon us, God, that we would not be stuck in a rut. But ever growing, speak to those who have yet to find their position in this church to be working for you. And use their gifts and talents, wherever they may lie, for the glory of God and your soon coming kingdom. Cause us to turn, God, from those things that displease you. Cause us to not be extremists in the sense of what I mentioned earlier. Don't make me too rich, I'll forget you. Don't make me poor, because I'll steal. In both cases, offend God. Help us to be balanced in our thinking, in our behavior, in everything we do. And help us to get unstuck from many things, including the complaining, and to give glory to you, to be thankful and grateful to you for everything that you've given us, but especially the gift of eternal life. Remind us this week again to love you with all of our heart, 
all of our soul, all of our mind, and all of our strength. And remind us to love one another. And this we give you all of the praise, all of the glory, and all of the honor in Jesus' name. Say amen with me, please, today. Amen. Amen.